I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Not only did I almost play that song all the way through, I almost played it twice. You were just hearing Flip Your Wig by Husker Du, which features my guest today on the program, bassist Greg Norton. Let me tell you a little bit about Greg Norton. Greg Norton was born in a Catholic hospital in Davenport, Iowa. Now, that soon-to-be metropolitan city called Davenport was actually named after George Davenport, He was an English sailor who fought for the U.S. in the War of 1812. Why was this notable? Well, because the U.S. was fighting Britain at the time over violations of U.S. maritime rights. The British-born Davenport was probably getting a lot of emails saying, Uh, George, are you going to come over and help us fight? And Davenport was like, no. And they were like, why? And he was like, because I live in Iowa now, bro. You can see why I never taught history. Now, we're not going to spend too much time in Davenport. Want to hear why? Because Greg Norton didn't. Actually, for the sake of historical accuracy, Norton's family lived in Rock Island, Illinois at the time of his birth. And, before he was a year old, they had relocated to Omaha, Nebraska. Then, when Norton was four, his family moved to where his mother's side came from, St. Paul, Minnesota. And, as these things happen, Norton's grandmother's house was only a few blocks away from the boyhood home of Grant Hart, who, at the time, was still a boy. Now, Siri can tell you a lot of things, like how to get from Davenport to Omaha, and how to get from Omaha to St. Paul, and how to go from your new house in St. Paul to Grant Hart's house in St. Paul. But what Siri could never tell you was just how profound the space between Greg Norton's house and Grant Hart's house really was. Raised in the Minneapolis suburb of Mendota Heights, Greg Norton grew up listening to the Beatles, and the steady, inventive pull of Paul McCartney's bass lines found him gravitating towards the instrument. He got his first bass guitar when he was 14, and, thanks to an older sister and brother who were nine and four years his seniors, Norton got turned on to a lot of cool music at a really early age. Zeppelin and Hendrix were on steady rotation in his bedroom, But that kind of virtuoso playing was kind of intimidating to the fledgling musician. Enter 1978, the fiery, lippy, and sometimes even sloppy bombast of punk rock not only rang Norton's bell, it made him think, I can do this. Now, here's something about those punk rock records that Norton loved so much. He was surrounded by them. The 18-year-old bassist had taken a job at a record store called Melody Lane in West St. Paul, and he was in heaven. But 
No sooner had he started than a burly 16-year-old named Grant Hart called him out for taking his job. Unbeknownst to Norton, the store manager had previously told Hart he could have a job at Melody Lane once he turned 16. He was probably saying that just to get rid of him, but as soon as Grant Hart turned 16, he went to get that job. And instead, he got Greg Norton, and he wasn't pleased. But here's the thing about Greg Norton. He's a cool guy. And because he knew the assistant manager, he pulled what strings could be pulled, and just like that, Hart and Norton were working together at Melody Lane in perfect harmony. Greg Norton and Grant Hart became fast friends, hanging out all the time. Not only did they share a love of punk rock, they both shared a love of the Marx Brothers. Now, Norton later became instantly recognizable for his handlebar mustache, and as a kid growing up in the 80s, I used to call him the Raleigh Fingers of post-punk. Raleigh Fingers was a pitcher for the Padres who had that same exact mustache, although I don't think his teammates ever referred to him as the Greg Norton of baseball. Anyway, I'm only bringing this up because it may very well have been Norton's adoration of the comedy of the Marx Brothers that inspired him to grow that mustache in the first place. But back to our story. This show is not sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club, so we will move on. Now, Hart brought his drum kit over to Norton's house, and for months they would just jam around, tossing ideas back and forth. Fun fact, at the time, Grant Hart was in a Beatles cover band called Train. No, not that Train. His job in that band was playing keyboards and handling background vocals. Now, any great rock and roll story has a record store as its connective tissue, and this story is no different. Grant Hart and Bob Mould met at a record store, and they became fast friends. Everyone in the story becomes fast friends. Hart started to hang out with Mould at his college dorm. Then they started jamming. Then they added Norton to the mix. Then they added another guy. And then they were a band called Buddy and the Returnables. Now, as far as cover bands go, Buddy and the Returnables were pretty cool. But the sound of the keyboard played by that fourth member, Charlie Pine, was starting to bug Norton and Mould and Hart. And so they sacked Pine. They renamed themselves Husker Du, which was the name of a 70s memory board game, and Danish for Do You Remember, and the rest, as they say, is history. Husker Du went on to become one of the most important and influential bands of all time. A primal blend of buzzsaw guitars, crashing cymbals, and prowling bass lines, their music was a feral blast of jagged beauty played with speed, power, and conviction. And because all three members of the band were Beatles fans, it was no surprise that gorgeous harmonies and huge hooks burned through their blistering aural landscape. During their time together, Husker Du put out six albums. Their swan song was 1987's Warehouse Songs and Stories, an absolutely Goliath double album that was not only filled with smoldering post-punk, it hinted at an endless possibility of future sonic directions. But those directions were to be taken separately. The suicide of their manager, combined with drug use and inner friction, cracked the band clean in half. And in 1987, Husker Du was all over. Mould and Hart went solo, then Mould fronted Sugar, and Hart took the helm of Nova Mob. As for Norton, 
he played in Gray Area, then he played in Shotgun Rationale, and then, you guessed it, he became a chef. It's true. Norton and his wife at the time owned the Red Wing Minnesota restaurant, The Norton's. And while operating that business, Norton put his bass guitar down for 14 years. He returned to music in 2006 with the band The Gang Font featuring Interloper, and now he's back again, this time with the Minnesota-based band Porcupine. Porcupine's new effort, What You've Heard Isn't Real, is out now. And let me say this about the record. This power trio's melodic assault brings to mind the roster of the Husker's old label SST Records when they were in their heyday. Falling somewhere between Mission of Burma and early Buffalo Tom, Porcupine's new one is crunchy, catchy, and cool. And I should tell you that the album contains an homage to Norton's fallen friend, the late Grant Hart. This homage comes in the form of a cover of Hart's song, Standing by the Sea. As for Norton, his bass playing is as strong and inventive as ever, and he's still got the mustache, but there's something very different about Greg Norton these days. He's a dad. We talk about becoming a father late in life, we talk about Porcupine, and we talk about Husker Du. It's a great conversation, and I'm glad you're here to hear it. So, enjoy my chat with Greg Norton, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. You know, I kind of go through bouts where I will, uh, you know, practice like technical stuff for a while, but then I'll just, uh, usually I just play, you know, I just start playing and, and start finding, you know, grooves to work and, and, um, taking it from there. Uh, never really sat down and played to records that much, just kind of, uh, made stuff up on my own. So... Well, when you when you were a kid and you were and you were listening to records, were there guys that were playing where you thought, well, that's the guy I want to be? Like that's the guy that's that's really inspiring to me. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, obviously, you know, listening to uh, the bass lines that Paul McCartney played, or John Entwistle, or Chris Squire from Yes. Uh, I mean, all three of those guys were very inspirational. Um, as far as like, you know, going like, wow, that, that was cool. Yeah. I want to, want to try to do that. You always struck me as, as, you know, you're one of those guys that looks good holding a bass. And I thought he, you know, obviously you chose the right instrument. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And I, and I wonder about that where, you know, did it feel natural to you from the very beginning or was there, was there a learning curve in terms of like, oh, this feels awkward or did you just sort of like pick it up and go, oh yeah, this is, this is the way to go. Uh, you know, it's um, like a lot of a lot of kids that, you know, it's like, oh, I want to be a guitar player. But I always kind of had big hands and guitar was, uh, I don't know, kind of difficult uh, for me to, to, no pun intended, get a grasp on it. But uh, uh, so, you know, when I discovered the bass, I was like, OK, yeah, this feels a lot, a lot more natural. Uh you know, it just fit better it, and it, it felt right. So, um, uh, took it from there. What about all the, the years that you weren't playing? Were you, when you would walk by the bass, would you, would you sort of go, I'll get to you, I'll get to you. Right. But right now I'm busy or, or were you still practicing? 
Uh, well, you know, after uh, uh, Husker Du broke up, uh, and once I started into the restaurant business and got into the kitchen and was just working so much, uh, you know, uh, so many hours every week, uh, I, I literally went like 14 years without even picking up my base. And then, um, you know, I, I met Dave King after a Bad Plus show uh, back in uh, 2003. And uh, he's like, hey, I got this crazy idea for this band. And I think you'd be the perfect bass player for it. And I'm like, hmm, OK. So I actually started picking up the bass and reacquainting myself with it. And uh, that's how Gangfont came about. Uh, Gangfont is, you know, it took us literally two years from that conversation to our first rehearsal. And then, um, you know, we wrote a, wrote a record, put it out. And then 2010, we wrote another record and recorded it. And it's still in the can. Gangfont plays about once a year. So when Casey called and said, hey, do you still play your bass? And I'm like, yeah, of course I do. And I, I said, I'd really like to be playing a, a lot more than I, than I, you know, the one gig a year that I get to play in Gangfont. And he's like, well, why don't you join Porcupine? And I'm like, I would love to. So that's kind of how that came about. That sounds so easy. <laughs> uh, I guess organic is, is a good way to put it. Uh, we'll go with organic. <laughs> Um, in, in the time that you weren't playing, I mean, 14 years, when you say that now out loud, do you, do you kind of go, man, that's a, that was a long time. Uh, that was a long time. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, getting back into it, it was, you know, obviously, you know, you gotta, gotta wake up those muscles and, and, uh, get those, those, the right brain synapses firing and, and all that. So, um. You know, it was it was a fun challenge to to jump back into it. But uh, you know, I think a lot of people are have the ability. You just have to be persistent at getting back there, right? Well, yeah. I mean, so was that a moment where you found yourself practicing quite a bit to get back into into bass shape? Uh, yeah, actually, I did start playing a lot, and uh, you know, for you know, the first uh, four years that, that uh, I got back into it, I was still in the restaurant business and was able to, you know, I would spend a lot of, a lot of time late at night and a lot of time in the morning at it. And, and then um, the last restaurant space that I was in, we actually had a huge basement and, you know, we set up a, uh, a band room down there and uh, was playing every night with a couple of guys in a improvisational rock group that we called ourselves Con Queso. <laughs> yeah. Con Queso actually played a few couple of gigs with Porcupine um, in 2009, 2010. So Casey had kind of been on your radar a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Um, the first time I saw Porcupine, they were opening for the Meat Puppets down in Lacrosse, and uh, I just thought they were awesome. And I was particularly impressed with Casey. Um, you know, he wrote really great songs and he's got uh, a very, you know, distinct guitar style. And, you know, he, he could sing, you know, he, he sings great. And um, I remember thinking like, 
I got to find a guy like this someday. <laughs> and lo and behold, he found me. So, yeah. I mean, I feel like if Porcupine had put records out in, in 83, they would have been an SST band. Like they, to me, they have the spirit and the sound of, of the label at the time. Uh, yeah, I could see that. Yep. Yeah. Um, SST definitely, you know, um, you know, looking back on all of the stuff that they put out, um, you know, they, they did a great job of finding finding talent, finding bands. Yeah, I could see a Porcupine record coming out somewhere in between that first Dinosaur record and the Buffalo Tom record, somewhere in, in that pocket. Yeah, I, I could see that, yep. Um, I know I'm fixated on the time you weren't playing, but I'm, I'm curious. I heard Tom Waits once said that just because you're not fishing doesn't mean you're not thinking about having your line in the water. And I wonder if all the time that you that you weren't playing, you were at least still thinking about it, or was it something you just sort of pushed in the back of your brain? Uh, no, I always always thought about it, you know. Uh, but you know, and I, I also uh, definitely feel that you know a lot of people, a lot of musicians gravitate towards you know working in in uh, uh, restaurant kitchens because in a way there's a lot of similarities, you know. You, your, your menu is your, your set list, you know, you just don't know how many times you're going to have to play a particular tune in a row. Uh, there's definitely choreography involved in, in working a busy line. Uh, you know, getting ready is like your sound check. And then, you know, once dinner starts, it's, it's showtime. And, uh, you know, when you're done, it, you, you know, you do get some pretty much instant feedback from your audience. So, um, you know, I was always, always definitely, you know, kind of, thinking about um, kind of the bridge between those two worlds. So uh, it was always on my mind. How are you with instant feedback? I, I'm not so sure I'm so good at it. I, I think I take it all personally. Uh, well, you know, the, uh, the, the, the one thing that I, that I definitely learned in the restaurant business is, you know, you, you, need, to be, you need to hear the negative feedback. And you need to be reminded all the time that you can be better because if you constantly are just told that that was great, you're great. Eventually you start to believe it. And once you think that you're great, you're toast, you're done. Um, you know, it's, um, you, you need to continue to try to be better. And I guess that's kind of the true in everything, right? Well, yeah, because once you start to feel that you are great, I think you stop pushing yourself. Right. Exactly. So you can, you're one of those guys, you can take a note. You can take, you can take some constructive feedback. Uh, yeah, it doesn't mean I'm, 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 you know, I'm, of course you're always your own worst critic. So, you know, a lot of times, particularly like, you know, playing live music, uh, you know, you notice every bad note or wrong note that you play, <laughs> you know, uh, the audience probably doesn't pick up on it, but you hear it. And, uh, so some nights you're, you're like, wow, that was, that was a rough one. And everybody'd be like, oh, what are you talking about? And they'd be like, ah, never mind. But, uh, you know, there again, it's the push to try to keep yourself improving. How much does that resonate? I mean, I, I teach college and uh, two nights ago I taught a, a class. I didn't do a good job. I had, a, I was off that night and I still haven't let it go. So I, I wonder how how hard are you on yourself? How and how long does that stuff resonate? Where you're like, oh, I was not in the pocket that night. Uh, usually, just 
the drive home. <laughs> it can be, you know, some nights you drive home. I, I live an hour away from the Twin Cities from Minneapolis. So, um, you know, some nights you drive home and nothing, no radio on, no, no music, just silence. <laughs> uh, but, you know, by the next day, you got to, you know, you got to push on and, and um, you know, uh, I always like the phrase, the, uh, uh, what is it? The, the only, the only thing you should be better, better than is the person you were the day before. So, um, try to, try to carry that forward. You know, uh, recently I heard a, a couple of things that I kind of wish I would have, uh, had somebody to tell me when I was younger. Uh, and it's a couple of things that I'm trying to instill in my, my kids. But the, the first one is, is, um, um, Hard work beats talent if talent doesn't work hard. To remind them, like, hey, even if you think you're you're great, you got to work at it. And uh, the the power of the three P's: uh, practice, patience, and persistence. You got to practice. You need to be patient because you're not going to be great overnight, and you need to stick at it. So, um, I guess I try to try to ingrain those thoughts into my world and, and hopefully my kids will appreciate that someday too. You always struck me as a, as a hard worker though. I mean, do you think you're a guy who you always were to me, you came across that way as somebody who wasn't really screwing around? Uh, yeah, you know, I guess that was kind of the, the whole, you know, work ethic of, of Husker as well though. Um, you know, but we'd get, we'd get done with our tours and, and, you know, I enjoyed, taking some time off and hitting the golf course. And I think sometimes that bothered Bob and Grant that, you know, I still had other friends with other interests and, you know, didn't de devote my entire life to, you know, uh, practicing my instrument and honing my craft. But, um, you know, you gotta have, you gotta have a release. You gotta have some, you know, uh, something to balance that out. Otherwise it, it, otherwise, then it does become work. You know, I, I, I just want it to be fun. I want it, want it to not be work. Um, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, with Husker, it was, well, let's keep doing this until we, we're not having any fun anymore. And, you know, 87, towards the end of 87, it was not that much fun anymore. So the breakup of the band was inevitable. Uh, you know, that timing of, of how it went out and the, the circumstances were, you know, just, uh, in a way, I suppose, just, uh, just an excuse for how things went down, but I'm having a lot of fun with porcupine. Actually the playing with Ian and Casey, it, it feels like those early days of Husker and it's so much fun playing live and, uh, practicing and rehearsing and, uh, writing tunes. And, you know, it's the, there's Casey, Casey writes the lyrics, uh, you know, and the three of us really, you know, hammer out all of the, the, uh, the musical arrangement. So it's, it's a lot of fun. The idea of a, of a national tour, does that, is that daunting? Is that something, I know there's nothing scheduled, but is that because that's sort of logistically right now, not possible? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, you need a few things in place uh, to to embark on a, a big tour, and one is is you know the ability to you know 
get shows booked and be confident that you're going to, you know, be able to, to fill whatever room that you're going to be playing in. Uh, but also right now, you know, I've got two young kids. Um, uh, you know, we all have full-time jobs. Uh, I'm not saying that that, that would prevent us from, from doing a larger tour. Um, I think we would all welcome the opportunity to, to do that. Uh, but right now we're looking at probably long weekends, you know, around the Midwest and then eventually maybe next spring, um, like quick, you know, seven to 10 day, uh, runs to both coasts and possibly down just straight down the, uh, um, through Kansas and Oklahoma and Texas and back up. But the idea of, of leaving your family behind is probably not that appealing. Well, you know, they, they, they literally do grow so fast right now. So, uh, I'm, I'm really, and you know, I was 55 when, when my first daughter was born. So I have been, uh, really involved in, in, in their lives and, and, been enjoying watching them grow up and, uh, you know, I want to continue to, 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 you know, be there and help out. And and right now they're, they're kind of a handful. So, um, you know, you don't want to necessarily like just take off and, and, uh, you know, uh, force, uh, you know, a single parenting role on, on, uh, my wife for, for 10 days. So, um, you know, but We'll, we'll definitely work some shows out, you know. Had you, had you always wanted to be a father or it was something you'd kind of put off? I never thought I was going to have kids, to, to be honest. Uh, uh, I, you know, had been married previously and, and uh, never had kids and, and uh, just, you know, wasn't part of the conversation. And when I, you know, met Toby, uh, she has a beautiful stepdaughter who is now 12 and uh, you know, I've known her since she was four. So, uh, you know, after, after a few years, we just kind of talked, we're talking about it. And, and I was like, you know, after we had gotten married, it's just, it felt, it felt like the, it, it was, I'm, I'm, let, let's just put it this way. I'm super happy that the opportunity didn't slip by because I love being a dad. Yeah, because I'm, you know, I'm 48. I have no kids, but I'm certainly thinking about it. I just have to find someone who uh, wants to think about it with me. Um, right. Exactly. <laughs> but I, the idea of being a father later on in life, uh, I think that I'd be better at it than I would have been at 25. Oh, I totally agree. I, I, you know, if I was trying to be a dad in my in my 20s or my 30s, you know, it's, um, I would have not been home much. Uh, you know, would have missed out on a lot of things. And, and, um, you know, as it is now, I'm, I'm with the kids all the time and I'm, I'm definitely a part of their, their everyday life and their development. And, you know, um, watching them grow and get smarter every day is it's such a trip. What have you learned about yourself through, through fatherhood? Uh, well, (laughs) uh, you, you definitely learn, uh, to be even more patient than, than, uh, than you have been, you know, it's, um, you know, the, my, my kids are 16 months apart. So, uh, right now I think the Stella, the younger daughter, uh, you know, she, 
you know, sometimes you forget that, hey, she's not even three yet. So um, it's it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to reason with them uh, at that age. But um, I don't know. It's it's just fun. It's uh, making them laugh. Hearing them laugh is the greatest thing ever. So. Were you were your parents like pretty cool people? Were they were they strict? And and do you find yourself uh, feeling sometimes like you have a, a better understanding of them now? Uh, maybe I don't know a little bit. It's uh, you know my my dad wasn't um, home a lot when I was younger. Uh, he had a traveling sales gig. Uh, although I always thought he was a cool dude, uh, but, you know, I just didn't really spend a whole lot of time with him. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I was growing up, my mom was uh, involved with a lot of lot of activities, so she wouldn't be home a lot at night. You know, it's my older sister, uh, you know, basically uh, she was kind of the one kind of taking care of me mostly. Uh, for a lot of, a lot of times. And, um, you know, my folks split up when I was 14 and, um, I don't know. So I don't, I don't see myself as the same kind of parent that my parents were. And maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe I'm trying not to be my parents. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. There are times where I'll say things where I feel like I sound like my parents and I go, Oh God. (laughs) Oh yeah, no, I I <laughs> I think that's an inevitable, and then you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess mm-hmm. the, the DNA is strong. Um, yeah. What What is your relationship now with your bass? How would you compare yourself as a musician now, say, to when you were 25? What's What has changed? Do you think in your approach? Uh, you know, I I still kind of uh, practice the same way. Some some days it's you know working on technical stuff and but mostly it's just kind of uh running through some things although uh uh, you know now i actually do have something that i can plug in like my my phone into and and play along with with tunes so i'm actually been kind of going out and and listening to stuff and kind of challenging my stuff to learn learn some other people's music and that you know, just to kind of round things out, but um, I don't know. I still you know, try to play every day, and uh, you know, ideally, the uh, the ultimate goal would have the um, you know musician be the full time job, uh, and uh, to be playing as many many shows with the band as we could on a on a you know regular basis. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, I really like playing my bass. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think, I don't know, maybe I appreciate it more now as than I, when I was 25. So were you competitive then? I know that sort of the, the playing field was really, you know, even just on the label alone for SST was stocked with great players. Um, were you a competitive guy? Would you look around and go, "Oh man, that guy's killing it. I, I got to step it up." Or were you just competitive with yourself? And 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 is that how you are now too? Well, yeah. I mean, competitive with with myself, definitely. Uh, you know, and and the SST, you know, it's like the Minutemen and Husker Du. Those guys were like brothers to to us, you know. And so watching watching Watt play 
you know, we, it's like Chris Kirkwood and, and Mike Watt and Chuck Dukowski and myself. I mean, we're all totally different players. You know, it's, uh, I don't think any, anybody was ever trying to be like, Oh, I'm going to out Watt Watt or, you know, uh, everybody was just doing their own thing. So yeah, definitely, you know, competitive with yourself to challenge yourself. Uh, and today it's the, you know, the same thing. It's like, um, you know, I'm not going to go out and try to be some other bass player. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to keep being myself. So that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. And and I, I also, you know, by the way, I don't think anyone can out what, what, I don't think that can happen. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I dare anyone to try. Um, the idea that, you know, these guys were talking about, you know, years ago, friendships. I saw you guys play with the Meat Puppets. Are you still maintaining relationships and friendships that you've had in the industry for uh, the last 35 years or so? Or is that hard to do? Uh, you know, actually, it's easier to do nowadays than it, than it was, you know, 10, 10 years ago. So, uh, you know, Porcupine, we've already played a number of shows with uh, the Meat Puppets and, and uh, uh, Watt, uh came through last summer with uh, the puppets and we did uh, a couple of shows with them. It was the, the tour tour two, uh, you know, kind of a knockoff of the original SST tour. That right. was Husker, Meet Minutemen, Meet Puppets, Swa, uh, and uh, Worm, I think. Uh, but anyway, it's, it, you know, through, through Facebook, oddly enough, it's like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in contact with Clint Conley from Mission of Burma and, and all the Burma guys and, and Watt and uh, King Coffee from the from the surfers. And, uh, you know, and, and it's everybody is it's kind of it's kind of fun because you're seeing everybody's kind of like regular life pop up in your feed. Um, so, yeah, it's it's fun, uh, fun kind of making reconnecting with 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 folks. The very first band I interviewed in my life, I, I was 16. I interviewed the band angst. Remember them from, uh, Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Really like a lovely guy. I can't remember the singer's name. Great guy. And he was talking to me about the, the SST life. And it just sounded like there was a real brotherhood, like a real, like a legitimate organic Confederacy. And so to hear that you, that you are still pals, with a lot of those guys is, I think it's a very cool thing. Oh yeah. I, I totally agree. You know, that's, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there were, you know, I, I think you've got various camps like that around the country. You know, you've got the whole like discord, uh, group out in DC. Uh, it seems like those guys are still pretty, you know, solid and, uh, you know, it's Seattle. I think those, a lot of those people are, are pretty still connected. Although of course, a lot of those people are, are on a much larger uh, stage these days. So, <laughs> yeah, I just I like hearing that because it, it's sort of like you know it's a kind of a punk rock fraternity or a platoon of some kind. Like you've been through something together, and I, I just think that's very cool. Right, that's because you know uh, punk rock was life; it wasn't a lifestyle. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I listened to the Porcupine uh, record and I, I love it. I think I think Casey's a really special guy. Um, 
His songs, yeah, I totally agree. He's amazing. I mean, he really is, uh, and he kind of came out of nowhere uh, for me. I, I I jumped on on the second record, um, but but what a what a special group of songs. But I, I have to sort of ask about the the Grant Hart cover, uh, which by the way is fantastic. Was that an, was that an easy choice? Grant wrote so many great songs. Why that one? Well, uh, last summer on July first, Lori Barbero um, from Babes in Toyland put together a uh, kind of a surprise tribute night for Grant. Uh, he was uh, playing at a at a small club called the Hook and Ladder in Minneapolis, and Lori called up a bunch of people, a bunch of friends, and said, "Like, hey, this is what we what we want to do. I uh, want all you guys to just play Grant music." Uh, and then uh, we're going to surprise Grant, and then he'll play at the end of the night. So uh, we we got up and we played a five-song Husker Du set. We did uh, kind of a mashup of What Do I Want and uh, um, What's Going On. And then into that, we played uh, It's Not Funny Anymore, Dead Set on Destruction, and then Standing by the Sea. And... Um, and the, the the crowd crowd reaction was was wild. People were just kind of going nuts to hear hear the Husker stuff. Um, and then after that, both uh, Ian and Casey were like, "Hey, let's keep standing by the sea in the set. That's that's like a really fun one to play." And I'm like, "Yeah, that sounds good." Uh, and then you know, a few few weeks later, Ian suggested uh, that we make that one of one of the songs we take into the studio when. Um, when we go in and I'm like, I think that's a fantastic idea. So, um, so we did, and that's, you know, and basically at that point, um, that was after Grant had, had passed. Uh, so we, you know, kept it in the set and, um, you know, kind of as a, as a tribute to, to, uh, Grant. Is it still very difficult to think of him in the past tense? It's it's hard for me as a fan to even think about that. Um, yeah, you know, definitely. You know, he was he was bigger than life. So, um, you know, I miss the guy. Uh, we just played down in in uh, Cedar Falls, Iowa, and, and a guy down there gave me a uh, recording that he made of a solo Grant gig at uh, from. Iowa City, and uh, listening to that, and it was all the in-between song banter. It's like, oh, Grant, <laughs> uh, you know, put a smile on my face, but also it's like, wow, holy crap, you really just said that to that lady. That's 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 so you. <laughs> <laughs> were yeah. you uh, were you in touch with him uh, in the last couple of years? Uh, a little bit, you know, he lived in the Twin Cities. Uh, I'm down in Red Wing. You know, we were kind of in, in um, semi-regular contact getting the uh, the whole Savage Young Do project rolling. Uh, you know, I was very sad that, that uh, he didn't get to see the release. I think he actually would have been pretty happy with how it turned out. Um, you know, and after that, that hook and ladder show, we kind of kind of more reconnected on a, on a personal level, um, instead of just a business level. So, so that was, you know, that was nice. It's, you know, Grant, Grant and I were, were very close friends, uh, before the, the band started up and, uh, you know, in a way the, the, the band kind of 
put a little bit of a wedge in that friendship, but you know, still think of him as my friend as opposed to, oh, the guy I used to work with, you know, so. Right, right. The guy in the cubicle to my left. Um, right. It's funny, when I, was, when I was a kid, when I was 16, they put out, I think it was um, Warner Brothers sent this interview record that you guys did. They would send out this vinyl copy of an interview. And at the very oh, right. end mm-hmm. of the interview, Grant, I was, I've been haunted by this, Greg, for like 30 years. At the end of the interview, Grant, Grant said, oh, we're going to be around forever. We're going to be like the Grateful Dead. And, <laughs> and I believed him, man. Uh-huh. So I was really surprised when, when things had ended not soon after that. And I, I always felt like, what? Yep. So. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, uh, like, you know, I was saying that the breakup was was pretty much in, in, inevitable at that point. Um, I think I was the only one that really wanted to keep the keep the band rolling. And, uh, uh, you know, it's funny, a couple of years ago, uh, I just. I saw this Bob article pop up online and it was, and the quote was, uh, yeah, if George Martin would have, uh, produced our third album, Husker Du would have never broken up. So <laughs> supposedly Bob was trying to get Warners to get George Martin out of retirement. And, uh, according to this article, um, Warners was like, well, we can get the guy that engineered all the George Martin sessions. And Bob's like, nope, not good enough. But I just thought that that was interesting. Like, okay, really? So if George Martin would have produced the third Warner's record, we'd still be together? Hmm. Curious. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense in my brain. Right. <laughs> so then would we, we'd be the, uh, the, the, the Grateful Dead Beatles. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> well, it certainly would have been interesting. Uh, do you feel sometimes that, that Husker Du is sort of like the elephant in the room? I mean, I appreciate you addressing it. I mean, I don't know if it gets annoying or not. Uh, well, you know, not that many people tend to ask about the demise or anything like that. Actually, at our uh, CD release show here at Ice House a couple of weeks ago, this guy came up and introduced himself. And he's like, the last time I saw you play was at the Blue Note in Columbia, Missouri. And I'm like, holy shit, you were at the last show. And he's like, yep. And, um, he said, yeah, that was, that was a a rough, a rough show to watch. Uh, and, uh, I had totally forgotten that, that basically we, the show ended when Bob got somebody threw a beer can at Bob and hit him. And that's when the Bob's like, that's it. We're getting off the stage. Uh, but uh, he said, oh, yeah, well, the Porcupine Show definitely, like, made up for that last Husker show. So no, that's cool. <laughs> I'm like, thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I would imagine that, that beer cans were, were flying all the time, though. Uh, sometimes. You know, the, the very first time we played Austin, Texas, uh, we played at this club called The Ritz. And people started, like, chucking beer cans at us. And we were like, what the hell? Bob even caught one, like in air and threw it back at the guy that threw it. And then when, when we get done, we're like, what's up with the crowd? They kept throwing beer cans at us. And, um, I think it might've been, uh, King coffee. I think he was, I think he was with us on that. Uh, he wrote our, who's to do our very first fan letter, by the way. Um, wow. Yep. Uh, so 
Oh, you know, it might have been it might have been somebody from the big boys. They they were like, ah, you know what? Throwing empty beer cans at you, that means they like you. If they didn't like you, they'd throw full beer cans at you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, got it. <laughs> right. Like in the punk days, if you spit on the band, it means you like them. Yeah. We, we never liked that, though. No. Especially, you know, you'd get over to, to England and, and they were really into gobbing at, on you. Thought it was rather disgusting. Yeah. That's, that's, that's how uh, Strummer got hepatitis, I think. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Um, the, if that was a rough show for that guy to watch, was that last show a rough one to play too? Uh, it was tough, you know, uh, Bob, you know, Grant was not in good shape. He was, uh, you know, it, it sounded like he was barely like hitting the drums and his vocals weren't very strong. Uh, our sound guy pulled all the drums out of the front, uh, uh, the mains in the front of the house, you know, so it was it was not not a fun gig to play, that's for sure. Well, I'm watching a lot of the porcupine footage on YouTube, and it sure looks fun to play with those guys. Oh, it's a blast. Yep. Yeah, it looks like it. Uh, so goals, uh, maybe a, a full length, uh, you know, um, maybe a tour. So things are things are happening with this band. Yes, and, and I would say yes to both of those. Uh, you know, get back into the studio as soon as we can. Uh, get more you know, uh, keep writing songs, uh, and yeah, eventually, uh, get out on the road and, and do some extended touring. Uh, we'd love to get over to, uh, England. Uh, the record will have distribution in the UK and also in Germany. So, uh, hopefully an overseas jaunt will be in line. Yeah, well, it's just get on, strap in and see how far we go. Do you feel more creatively alive than you have in a long time? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Like I said, this, this re, you know, it, it feels like the, the early, the early days of, um, Husker. So, um, it's, it's a lot of fun right now. The fire is back. Exactly. Cool. Uh, Greg, I appreciate your time and I appreciate you chatting with me, man. It's so, so cool to, uh, get a chance to sit down with you. Yeah, awesome. Well, uh, nice, nice chatting with you, and and uh, um, thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you, and uh, and and good luck with everything, and uh, I appreciate it, man. Yeah, take care. All right, so there you go, the mighty Greg Norton, a lovely guy. Uh, porcupineband.com will hook you up with all you need to know uh, about that band. So go there. As for Stereo Embers, the podcast, we're on Spotify, we're on Google Play, and we're on iTunes. Visit us there. Subscribe. Leave ratings. Throw us some stars. You know how it works. Uh, find me on Instagram, Embers Podcast. Find me on Twitter, at Embers Editor. And find me at alexgreenonline.com. And you'll find me here next week bringing you another episode of Stereo Embers, the podcast. Let's finish things off with Porcupine. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I will see you next time right here on Bombshell Radio. Bombshell Radio.